0: Well the famous preacher Harry Aronside was once in a restaurant travelling when he was travelling across America on a preaching engagement. He got into conversation with a man who was sitting opposite him. Before he ate his lunch, he bowed his head and thanked God for the food the man looked at him and he said what are you doing Harry Ironside said well he said I'm a Christian and I believe in taking time to thank God for his goodness to me even in things like a meal the man looked at him and he said oh you're one of those those religious folk He says, when I get food, I just sit down at the table, take up the knife and fork, jump straight in and enjoy it. Harry Ironside looked at him and he said, well, he says, you're just like my dog. That's what he does. (laughs) And you know, the story has an amusing tale, but there's also a serious side to it, isn't it? How often people, even Christians, take what God gives them and never pause us to reflect on the giver of the gifts. An ingratitude and unthankfulness has been with the human race from the very, very beginning. God took our first parents And put them into a perfect place, Eden. Gave them a perfect marriage. They had a perfect relationship with God. And yet when that serpent came in that day to the garden, it wasn't long before he was able to detect discontentment, unhappiness. Very quickly he drew out of Eve a sense of unhappiness and ingratitude to God who had given to them freely everything. And of course we know the story how they fell into sin because of that and took the forbidden fruit. And unthankfulness has been part of the human race ever since being part of who we are. It's a sin that almost we could call a respectable sin. And even Christians, churches, are guilty of that sin. And the spirit of gratitude and thankfulness you have is really a spiritual thermometer of your life. If you are a thankful person, a grateful person, it reflects your walk with God. And of course, the converse is true. If you're an ungrateful person, an unthankful person, it's a reflection of the lack of spirituality in your life. And the Apostle Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 5:15, listen to what he says. In everything, give thanks. Now you don't need a PhD to understand that, do you? It's pretty straightforward. In everything. Give thanks. And he says, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. In everything, give thanks. Good days, bad days, sunny days, rainy days, Sunday, but also Monday. Days when the doctor says, there's nothing wrong with you. But days when the doctor says, I'm sorry, I have to tell you bad news in everything. Give thanks. This is the will of God concerning you. And you know, we often sing as Christians all these hymns, don't we? Great is thy faithfulness. All things bright and beautiful. But yet we leave the church grumbling, discontented. Unthankful. In fact, often we come in that way. We get up in the morning with a grumbling, discontented attitude, unhappy with God, unhappy with our relationships, unhappy with our job, unhappy with our circumstances. We come into church, fake it for an hour or so, and then we just leave the same way. And the smile quickly melts. As soon as the car disappears out of the car park. That's who we are, or often who we are, even as Christians. And it shouldn't be. In everything, give thanks, the Bible says. Now, the story we read in Luke's Gospel, chapter 17, is a very interesting story because it takes us back nearly 2,000 years ago to an incident in the Middle East where there were 10 lepers who met the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, in order to understand this story, you have to understand something about the nature of their circumstances, particularly the nature of leprosy. Today in Northern Ireland, when we hear the word leprosy, it doesn't mean very much to most of us because it's not a disease that affects people in this land. But in the Middle Eastern days, 2,000 years ago, leprosy was like the word cancer is today. In fact, I may say it in a stronger way, leprosy was even more feared than cancer was and is today. Because leprosy was incurable. Leprosy was a disease that was devastating. It was a death sentence. And it brought untold misery and poverty and destruction to a family, to a home, and to a community. Now let me explain what I mean by that. You see, if a person was a leper, because of the highly contagious nature of the disease, it meant that you were shut off from society. Maybe we had a little foretaste of that or an insight to that during that COVID lockdown period, when people, wisely or unwisely, were forbidden from having any contact with anybody else for period of time and people find that very stressful even for a few months but if you had leprosy it meant you were shut off completely from any social relationships that meant that you had to leave your family you had to leave your village or your town you had to live really on the rubbish dumps in the caves, outside the town, away from all human contact. If there was a funeral in your home, you could never attend. If there was a wedding for a son or daughter of yours, you could not attend. If there was a festival or a family celebration of any sort, you were forbidden from participating. It was a lonely, sad experience to be a leper. But then, even worse than that, the disease itself was ugly, was painful, was a disease that meant your body slowly wasted away. People, when they saw you, would keep away from you and you were forbidden from going near them. And if you came too close, children would stone you. You had to cry unclean, unclean if anybody came near you to warn them to keep their distance. And if any of your neighbors or friends, maybe even relatives saw you, they would just shake their heads. They couldn't touch you. They couldn't shake you by the hand. Those things made you a social outcast permanently in that society. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, spiritually, it was equally difficult. Because Jews, of course, were meant to go to the temple, to make sacrifice, to go to the house of the Lord for the Passover season to go to the house of the Lord to hear the word of God proclaimed. But when you were a leper, you couldn't do that. You couldn't enjoy the Passover. You couldn't make sacrifice for your sin. You couldn't go up to the temple and sing the praises of God or join in the prayers of God's people there. So physically, spiritually, emotionally, mentally, when you were a leper, it was the most terrible thing to endure. Now, these ten men were all lepers. We don't know how they became lepers. But we know that they were isolated from everybody else in that society, almost just lying there waiting to die. In those days, there's no Social Security The only food you get is if someone throws some scraps out to you outside the town or the village. You hear these men, desperate, alone, cut off from society. They hear somehow the good news that Jesus Christ is passing that way. They hear that he has the power to heal them from this dreaded disease, this incurable disease, this death sentence. And when he comes near them, it says in verse 12, they stood afar off. They couldn't come close. Legally, they were forbidden. And it says in verse 13, they lifted up their voices. Now, something that's not often understood about leprosy As a disease, it not just wastes your fingers and your toes in particular. Parts of your ears and nose will drop off. But it affects the throat. And it causes the person to lose the ability to really speak properly. So that when a leper would shout, it would be like a raspy horse shout. These lepers begin to shout, whatever little voice they have, and it, was, it must have been a pitiful spectacle to hear these men with hoarse and raspy voices, and they're shouting as loud as they can, Jesus, Master, have mercy on us. Now, you notice they don't ask for justice, because justice would have been that they deserved to suffer. In fact, justice for a sinner, a son of Adam, is death. The soul that sinneth, he shall die. That's what the Bible says. The wages of sin is death. God doesn't owe them a healing. Doesn't owe them salvation. Doesn't owe them forgiveness. And these ten men recognize that. They have no right to demand that the Lord Jesus Christ heal them. They understood that, but they also understood that Jesus was a God of mercy, he was a God of grace, and that they could appeal to that side of His attributes. And they said, "Have." Mercy on us. Have mercy on us. And you know, the Lord Jesus Christ paused and had mercy on them. And he does something here that he didn't really do in almost any other miracle. He said to them, go, show yourselves, Unto the priest. Now, he could have just spoken and healed them, couldn't he? He could have touched them and healed them. He did that with others. But in this instance, he said, go and show yourselves unto the priest. Now, why did he do that? I think for two reasons. Number one, under the Old Testament law, which Christ always upheld, That in order for a person to be readmitted having thought to have suffered from leprosy back into that society. They had to be declared healed by the high priest or whole. Christ being one who always obeyed the law and always upheld the law. Sent them back for that specific purpose. But then I think there's another reason that Christ likely did it that way. And I think it's because the priests themselves, as a body, were opposed to him. In fact, they hated him, despised him. And by sending not one but ten lepers back, healed. It would be such a statement of truth of his miraculous messianic power that even the priests could not gainsay or talk against it. It would shut them up, at least for a period of time. And those who would be there and witness it would shut the priests up if they spoke against him and say, these men are healed. This man has special power. This is a real miracle. And he sends these men off. And as they go off, and there's no thunder and lightning. God doesn't need thunder and lightning to heal a person. So he make their way, were told they were cleansed as they began to walk by faith in the promise of God in obedience to the command of God to go to the priest suddenly these men started to look at each other and look at themselves and and they saw the fingers that were deformed suddenly reformed and the scales began to disappear from their skin. And those who couldn't speak properly suddenly discovered something's happened, my voice. Those who'd maybe lost limbs looked down and the limb has grown back. The toes have come back on my foot. And straight away straight away they Realized we're healed. All of us, completely, perfectly, freely, fully. Now we can imagine as humans how exciting that must have been. Having just a few minutes before living under the death sentence of leprosy, just a few minutes before facing the prospects of living life alone in a leper colony, cut off from family and friends forever until the day you die, suddenly everything's changed. They can go back to their families. They can go back to their jobs, their businesses. They can take care of their loved ones again. They can participate in the worship in the temple again, and the Passover, and all the activities around community life. And that must have been such a exciting thought to be reunited with their loved ones once again. But you know, the sad thing is, in all the excitement of that, only one of them, only one out of ten, paused to reflect on the goodness of God. We're told In verse 15, and one of them, when he saw that he was healed, they all saw that they were healed, but only one thought this way, turned back, and with a loud voice, oh, I think that's interesting, it says a loud voice, because now he could suddenly shout. He begins to glorify God, thank God, praise God. Worship God. And he comes to the Lord Jesus Christ in verse 16. And it says, and he fell down on his face at his feet, giving him thanks. And he was a Samaritan. Wasn't even a Jew. What an insult to the Jewish listeners that story was. The ones, the Samaritans that they hated. This one who who wasn't even born a Jew. Brought up in the law of the Jewish people. He alone came back and gave thanks and glorified God for what God had done for him. Now, you may say, as you read this story this morning, well, I kind of understand why the other nine were just too excited. Well, you know, God didn't understand. Because notice what Jesus Christ says next. It says, And Jesus answering said well done no let's forget about the nine no in fact jesus christ focuses in on the nine and he says this where there are not ten cleansed where's the other nine but where are the nine and having asked those rhetorical questions because he knew exactly who those nine were and he knew exactly why they hadn't come back and he knew exactly where they were at that moment. The Lord Jesus Christ says, there are not found that return to give glory to God, save this stranger. He says only one came back to give glory to God. Only one deserves commendation here. And really what he's saying is the nine are at fault. The nine should have come back too. Their first reaction should, come, should be to come back and give thanks to God for the goodness of God, for the blessing of God. And when he's speaking like that, what he's also really saying is the nine are sinning in their attitude and in their actions. And then in verse 19, he, he, he explains a second miracle has happened that day. The first miracle was the physical healing of the ten. But the second miracle is the spiritual healing of the one. He says, arise, go thy way, thy faith. What faith? The faith he's just demonstrated. In the power of God. In the grace of God. The thankfulness to God. The blessing of God. That faith hath made thee whole, has changed your life forever. That man's a believer. That's what he's saying. That's the heart of a Christian. That when God gives them something, they respond in gratitude. You know, as we read this story this morning in Market Hill, you and I may look at those nine lepers who were ungrateful, who ran on to the priest's house, who didn't come back to give glory to God, we may look at them and look down our spiritual nose and say, huh, those pair of boys. Those crowd of boys or some boys. But you know, the nine who ran away without thanking God are more reflective of us than the one who came back. If we're really honest. If I was to do a poll, and I'm not going to today, and say, how many people got up this morning and put the two feet out of the bed and said, thank you, Lord, that I am fit to get up and walk out of this bed this morning. Many people went down to breakfast and said, thank you, Lord, for providing this food. Many people put their hand in their pocket and said, thank you, Lord, for the money to pay for the bills this week. A job to go to. Many got into the car, drove here, and said, thank you, Lord, for the privilege of coming to worship. The freedom of worship. A Bible in my own mother tongue a fellowship of God's saints to come here and sing the praises of God with. I don't have to do a poll because I'm very sure that wasn't the experience of most of us. In fact, many of you are probably sitting here saying, I hope that guy finishes soon. For I have a lot of things I want to do today. i I'm have more important than business to attend to. You know, we grew up and Market Hill knows this better than almost anywhere. In a period called the Troubles, didn't we? Life was cheap. Life was hard. In every sense of that word, people were poor. People had enough to eat, but that was about it. There was not an awful lot left over. And I always tell people when I go around different churches, you would go to a church car park and people would have exhaust pipes tied up with or twine in a car. Isn't that right? There was, was, was no brand new cars. And lovely buildings like this didn't exist for most churches. It was hard life. It was tough. And on top of that, You had all the conflict. Life was cheap and life was hard. and Families had to endure an awful lot. Jobs were not plentiful. But you know, when we reflect, and this is not nostalgia speaking, because no one looks back on those days with Many happy memories, if we're really honest. But we have to look back and say, people were more thankful in those days. People were more spiritual in many ways in those days. Christians were more spiritual in those days. Prayer meetings were better attended. Churches were better attended. Not just churches like this, but every evangelical church... In South Armagh, could make that statement. Sunday schools were more disciplined and better run. They never had problems with Sunday school teachers, getting them. Children's meetings. People had a fear of God. And now as we look even in places like Market Hill, that... Wouldn't have has been as touched by secularism as many other parts of this land. If you go around Market Hill today, you'll see plenty of brand new cars, beautiful homes, jobs are plentiful, food is we've too much food, we're so overweight, aren't we? And yet, how few people even darken the door of a church on a Sunday even in places like here, rural places. I was preaching in Cook last Sunday, and it's interesting just to drive around Cook, uh, a little rural village that, again, like Market Hill, suffered so much during the Troubles, and a place that would pride itself on being loyalist. They would tell you we're loyal. Loyal to who? You find loyal to themselves. And their own selfish lusts and interests because they're not loyal to God. I remember a man years ago, I won't name him, but I attended a meeting and he was there. He had come from a very poor background and he was declaring that he was going to stand as an MP for that area. And he eventually did and was elected. And at that meeting, he said, well, is there any questions? That was a dangerous thing to ask. The a little Christian man got up. And he said, sir, I have listened to you this evening. And you have a great background story. Came from a poor family in working class area of Belfast. Made it to a grammar school, Queen's University. He became one of the leading lawyers of his day. Man of significance. Very articulate. Brilliant man. He said, I've come here today to listen to you. And he said, you have spoken an awful lot of words. But he said, when I was a boy, I was taught by my mother that we stand in our home for God and Ulster." And I heard an awful lot about Ulster in your words tonight. But I didn't hear anything about God. What does he mean to you? What involvement has he in your family? How do you see him in this nation of ours? And you know, the man couldn't say anything. Because he didn't know God. Didn't know anything about him. Loyal to a flag, but not loyal to God. And you know, we're we're in a country now that, if we're honest, is a secular country, isn't it? It's a godless country, and people just are living their lives their way. Many churches are empty, or emptying. And children and grandchildren who. Once were are on the pews, are no longer there. Haven't gone to other churches, they're going to no church. Why? Because they're not thankful. That's the real problem. They've taken from God and taken from God and they've ignored God. And you know, this is not a new problem for the people of God. If you turn with me to Deuteronomy 32 and with this I'll Wrap up. Time is marching on. And I don't want anybody complaining about me on the way home. But, you know, in the book of Deuteronomy, chapter 32, old Moses, 120 years of age, is about to die. God has revealed to him, you come to the end of the road, Moses. His eye is not dimmed. Still got great eyesight. He can see what's going on in the tents of Israel. They're on the verge of the promised land. Moses pauses to have one last address. One last series of sermons. And no doubt all these young people who, none of them had grown up in Egypt. They're all born in the wilderness era. Because all those who were grown up in Egypt above 20 years and above were cast down by God, cut off by God because of their rebellion. So these are all young people, young families. They're about to enter the promised land. They're about to receive homes that they didn't build for free. Be given vineyards they didn't plant for free. Given housings estates, farm estates, that they never inherited for free. And Moses, looking at that generation with the prophetic eye, begins to describe in verse 1 to verse 14 of the blessings God is about to pour upon them and has poured upon them as a nation. But then when the old man gets to verse 15, he pauses and he says this, but, oh dear, there's going to be a contrast now, but Jeshurun, now Jeshurun is a pet name for Israel, it's a beloved name for Israel. So he's speaking now of Israel when they enter the promised land, old Moses says, but Jeshurun waxed. They're going to be prosperous now. The former slaves are going to be free. The people who had no homes, no money, no resources are going to be given everything. And they're going to get very prosperous. In fact, he says they waxed fat. So much to eat. But what happens, Moses tells them. And kicked, oh you see the rebellion straight away. I don't need God. I don't need anybody to tell me what to do. I'm in control of my own destiny now. And waxed fat, thou art grown thick, thou art covered with fatness. Then he forsook God. Likely esteemed the rock of his salvation. Now this hadn't happened yet. Moses was still alive at this point. But seeing to the future, he could see the complacency, the apathy, the rebellion, and then the outright hostility to the word of God from the next generation that was coming down the road. And you know, if you read Judges chapter 1 and Judges chapter 2, everything Moses said here came true. Joshua died. The elders that were with Joshua died. And then it says what? And they forgot God. And there arose another generation which knew not the Lord, nor yet the works which he had done for Israel. They knew not the Lord. They were ungrateful, didn't care for God, just got on with living life, their way. And you know, it could happen so easily to us. In fact, it's happening to our nation, isn't it? A nation that has forgotten God. I was watching the television some time ago when this health secretary, Matt Hancock, spoke about his rollout of the vaccine, and he said this, science has made us free. And I thought to myself, not a mention of God. Couldn't care less. We've hardly got a politician who can even use the word God without blaspheming. It's not right. That's the nation that we live in. That's the time that we live in. You can say everything you want about Christianity and God, but you say anything against anybody else, oh, you'd face the wrath of the media and the political class. And even in this country, they strut around boasting in their sin, in their rebellion against God. We even have the pride people, don't we? parading the streets. Couldn't, you might as well call them the hell people. Because that's the national religion of hell. Pride. They're parading. And they're saying to God, we don't care what you think. We'll do what we want. We're free. We control our own lives. And isn't it interesting? God just sent a little virus. That's all he had to do. A little virus. You can't even see with your eye. And he shut down the world for two years. Just to show how weak they really are. And now we have what? War. Plagues. And there's more to come. I can tell you there's famine to come. You just watch. It's on its way. And they're all asleep. What should the Christian do? Number one, be thankful. For what you have. I said I wouldn't read any more. But let me read one verse and then I promise I'm finished. Matthew 24. Because I think this is one of the great verses of the Bible. Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus Christ is speaking about the last of the last days. When all the turbulence and difficulty and turmoil will hit this world. And we're living in those days. And as it's all bubbling up. He says in verse 6. And ye shall hear of wars. Well, we're hearing about them, aren't we? And rumors of wars. Which country's next? Is it Taiwan and China? Who knows? Only God knows. It says, ye shall hear of wars and rumors of wars. But it doesn't end there, the verse. Because there's a wee message for the Christians. For the people of God. How do we respond? See that you be not troubled. Don't get shaken. Don't panic. Let the world panic. But don't you panic. Why? For all these things must come. The past. God's in control. That's what he's saying. He says, "I, I have ordained this. I have chosen this. This is my way. I know what I'm doing. You just get on serving me, living for me. The end is not yet. I'll decide when it comes. You and Market Hill, let the world say what they want and do what they want. But you come in here every Sunday. And say, as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to worship the Lord. We're going to thank the Lord for what he has done for me. And if my neighbors choose to go to hell, that's their choice. They can do nothing about it. If they choose to ignore God, I can do nothing about it. But I'm going to raise up a standard in my home. I'm going to be salt and light. And I'm going to begin today to be a thankful person for whatever god has done for me i never will cease to praise him king david you know grew up on the hills of bethlehem just a boy just a few sheep god suddenly elevated him to national prominence in fighting against the goliath the giant then eventually, after many years on the run from King Saul, maybe 12, 13 years, he became king. And he rebuilt the nation that Saul had destroyed, and he extended the borders of Israel to its greatest length, its greatest wealth. And he ended his life as Israel's greatest king. And David never forgot what God had done for him. You read the Psalms and it's full of statements like this. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name.